Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. So Alex, hypothetical question for you. If I were to say, um, hey, my buddy bailed. I've got a spare spot on an expedition to Everest. Uh, you've got the next five weeks totally free. There's no like crazy conflicts in your life. Uh, the trip is totally on me. So clearly this is like a hypothetical. Would you go? Would you say yes to going and climbing Everest? Yeah, I probably would. And actually, I've said this many times over the years that if somebody offered a free trip, I'd probably go. I mean, I've never been to Nepal, just the cultural experience, just the travel. I mean, if it's a free trip, you kind of always have to say yes. I mean, I feel like a big part of life is just saying yes to cool opportunities and, and learning along the way. So I would probably say yes, even though I'm not really interested in high altitude mountaineering. Has there been a point in your life where Everest ever captured your imagination? Like, were, were you in high school reading into thin air um, and, and thinking to yourself, well, maybe one day. Yeah, it's funny you say that because actually I did have, have to read into thin air in high school. And, you know, at the time I was already a really serious gym climber. And reading into thin air definitely did not capture my imagination in the same way that gym climbing was. You know, it's like, it felt like a completely different world. It wasn't like I read into thin air and was like, I should do that someday. You know, I read it and was just like, well, this is better than reading, uh, you know, A Farewell to Arms or something, but but this is not my world. Like, this is insane. Sometimes in, in our rock climbing community or sort of high-end alpinism community, there can be this, I'm so over Everest attitude, right? How do you feel about it? You know, I'm I'm sort of turned off by the crowds in the same way that anybody else is. But at the end of the day, it's still the tallest mountain in the world. And so there's obviously an appeal to climbing the tallest mountain in the world. You know, I mean, it's just it's just cool to get to the top, you know? Yeah. And so I think I may be less curmudgeonly or sort of elitist about that stuff as, as some other climbers, certainly some of my friends. You know, I'm kind of like, I mean, I understand the appeal. I see why people do it. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to three members of the Full Circle Everest Expedition talking to Phil Henderson, Adina Scott, and Eddie Taylor. Last year, the Full Circle Expedition made history by becoming the first all-black expedition to summit Mount Everest. It was a journey years in the making that required a deep commitment, vision, and teamwork, even before a single member set foot on the mountain. And what happened on the mountain may very well ripple outward to change our sport and community. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. I mean, the first climbing wall I ever been on artificial was a highway underpass that someone had drilled holes into it. That was probably like 1989 or something like that. I played football and I fractured a vertebrae in my neck when I was 21, maybe 21, I think. So there was a four year period of time between that injury when I was paralyzed from the neck down for a number of minutes and I was on disability for the next year. And through that year, I said, what am I gonna do with my life? Well, I'm gonna do anything I want because life is short. You can be different tomorrow. Within an hour, what you could do yesterday, you can't do. Sounds very much like the pandemic, right? <laughs> like everyone's life, it's like uplifted. Well, I went through that when I was 21. Over the next four years, I was like, what am I gonna do? When I found out about Knowles, I was like, this is what I'm gonna do. 
And I took a course and I've been working in the outdoors ever since then. I've worked in the outdoor industry for for a, a very long time um, and just recently became self-employed, I guess you can say, doing what I love to do still, just helping people get outside and so on. It, it's a long, long, long piece of life, but yeah. Yeah, my name's Philip Henderson. Um, from San Diego, California, I reside now in Cortez, Colorado. You know, when I came into the industry, there were no people who looked like me. Um, I didn't, not only that, but I didn't know anybody in the industry because I wasn't connected to it. That was back in the early 90s, 90, 1990, 92. I took a nose course in 92 and I didn't know anybody or anything about the outdoor industry. And so I remember that and I always wanted to be that not wanted to be, but I saw myself as that person for other people, which for me was a full circle. It was like, people would ask me, what do you do? And I would show them, we'd, I'd take them climbing, we'd go boating, we'd go hiking or something like that. And so I was that person that was an entry for other people. And that's kind of where full circle came about. When we were putting this expedition together, we were looking for a, a name for the expedition. And I explained that to the team. And we decided to adopt the name Full Circle. As you were saying that, it occurred to me that we are recording a podcast. And I was like, you know, nobody knows what you look like. But I was like, I was like, well, you're a black man with dreads and a stately looking white beard. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah. yeah, I was like, I feel like we need a, you know, and you're like, when people look like me and they're like, well, he has a soothing voice and sounds really nice. Like there are a lot of people that sound nice yeah. outdoors. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's something yeah. that, um, again, when people don't see something, you know, I, it, it can throw them for a loop. And I've had that happen many, many times. I walk in the door, they don't expect to see me. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And so, so talk about the, the process for putting together the full, full circle Everest team. And, and like, how, how did that come together? I actually, I was, I was in Ure, Colorado. I was teaching an, a, a clinic, a nice clinic in the back country. And I turned around and I saw Fred Campbell. And I'd never seen Fred before. I'd never seen another black person out in the back country climbing before if they weren't with me. And that only happened once actually in my life. And so I turned around and Fred was just standing there. I was like, yo, and we, you know, we just greeted each other. And I was like, yeah, you know, he said, my name's Fred. And I said, my name's Philip. And he said, Henderson, he knew who I was. And I said, how did you know? Well, he had been climbing with Conrad for the last three years while I was living in Patagonia in Chile. And so we kind of exchanged greetings and so on. We talked a little bit and I turn around and I noticed I was, you know, looking at my students, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye, I turn back around and there's Manoa. They're talking about climber Manoa Anu. So Fred and Manoa were actually climbing together. And, and so Fred asked me, he said, man, have you talked with, with Conrad? Cause he's something about Everest and Conrad had been sending me uh, emails to an email that I didn't have anymore because I didn't work at Knowles anymore. And that was the day that we, that the expedition literally started and we talked and then it was like, okay, it's on. I want to start putting this, the, the team together. Who else do I know that would be a good team member? And it was, we wanted to be gender neutral and finding black women with mountaineering skills and experience was very hard, but I knew of two. Rosemary and Adina. 
Okay, my name is Adina Scott. My day job these days is uh, doing science support on research vessels in Antarctica for the U.S. Antarctic program. So I go down to the ice and run the computers and gadgets for scientists who are doing all kinds of work down there. Wait, does that count as a day job? Yeah, it's a total day job. <laughs> a, day, a day job is like doing IT at, at Microsoft or something. Like freaking going to Antarctica on research vessels is not a day job. I have to do like, IT while I'm on the research vessel, so it totally counts as a day job. Huh. Anytime you have to do IT, no matter where you are, it's a day job. <laughs> Including uh, Everest Base Camp? Still, yes. uh, still a day job? <laughs> sure, why not? You have, you have quite a day job. <laughs> I knew what Adina did for work. I knew what she brought to the table in terms of, you know, having been on Denali and living in the Northwest and skiing and so on. And so I approached her as well. The, almost the next year, almost to the date, I was in Uray, Colorado at the hotel. I had my dog in the dog park. I turn around and Eddie's standing there. Another black man with dreadlocks in the middle of winter time. Hi, I'm Eddie Taylor. I live in Lafayette, Colorado been climbing for about 12 years and I'm a high school teacher and track and field coach. I was at the dog park actually and Phil was there and I had no idea who Phil was and we just started chatting a little bit and then I saw him like three or four times over that weekend and we traded numbers and maybe a month later we got together and went skiing for the day we went to get a day backcountry skiing and I threw the project at him he told me about this trip he was putting together and he thought I'd be a great addition. And he told me like, I'm not a positive, but I think there's 90% chance of this thing happening. And I told him I was 95% sure it was going to happen because I was 95% sure it was going to happen. But he thought I meant we had 95% of the funding and he was all in. We didn't have a penny. We didn't have a dollar. It was just this idea. And he had some people on the team and he was really excited and Honestly, at that point, I was not interested at all in climbing Everest, but he kind of talked about like his 30 year journey in the outdoor industry and how much of a change he thinks that like not just climbing the Everest and getting to meet the Sherpa people that he's spent a lot of time with, but how like this could potentially make a change in the outdoor industry in the US. So he kind of got me on board and I was psyched and started really basically 100% bought in a couple weeks after that. By 2020, Phil had formed a team. Eddie, Dina, Fred Campbell, Manoa, Abby Dion, Rosemary Saul, Thomas Moore, Evan Green, Dom Mullins, and Phil's longtime friend and legendary Kenyan climber James K.G. Kajabi. The team was diverse in region, climbing backgrounds, and age, but everyone had lived climbing. The passion stood out to Phil, and he brought them together. Like Phil's an outdoors person, and he's been, like I said, he's been doing it for a long time. Skiing, climbing, rafting, you know, he's kind of into it all. And I think he's hes definitely a big idea person. Like he comes up with these ideas, he sits and he thinks about things a lot. And he's also really great with forming relationships with people. And so I think that's how he brought this whole team together is, you know, he's met people over who knows how long, to be honest. And he's formed really good, meaningful relationships with everyone on the team. And so I think that's where his strengths are, is coming up with big ideas and forming great relationships. So at what point did the trip actually come together? So you have the team, you have the objective, you know, everybody's everybody's ready. Like, how did you actually make it happen? And, you know, talk about the process of getting everybody there and, and doing the thing. 
Oh, that's <laughs> that's a lot of different pieces because I mean, there there's the coming together and there's the fundraising and there's the logistical planning and there's this little thing that called COVID that shows up in the middle of all this. And so, yeah, I mean, there there are just a lot of different stories in there. Because I'd kind of forgotten about COVID. How did, I mean, were, were you guys planning to go the year that you did or were you aspiring to the year before? Because I mean, the the borders were closed for a while. I mean, yeah, so what, what all happened? Ooh, I think we actually aspired to do that two years before we actually did. So the first thing for me, it was, it's about building community and, te- and, and team building, right? So we did a trip to um, Highlight Canyon, actually. And that would have been, gosh, January of 2020. Yeah, January of 2020, so, yeah. we all went to Highlight Canyon, a shakedown trip. We had a good time. It was lovely. We climbed and did whatever little skiing we could, did some hiking around and so on. And, uh, and it was like, a, hey, raise your hand, you know, kind of feel each other out and whatnot and raise your hand if you're in and i knew from that trip like what that team looked like then the pandemic hit that would have been march 2020 when the pandemic came and everything stopped we'll be back with more after the break So, I mean, I'm like, so then what happened? So you guys had to push the trip for two seasons. Everest was closed. You know, I mean, how, how did you guys maintain morale and like maintain momentum for the whole the whole trip? And, and like how to find funding when you're not even sure if the mountain will be open? We kept going, but it wasn't easy. You know, from March to October, I mean, I was I had been furloughed um, from work. I was working at Osprey at the time I was furloughed. And for me, I started asking the question, like, why am I even doing this? You know, my daughter was in and out of school. I have a daughter who's 15, she just turned 15. So she would have been 12, 13 at the time. In and out of school. I'm at home, you know, all this stuff. I'm like, why are we doing this? People around the world are suffering and we're asking for money to go climb a mountain. That doesn't make sense to me. But I said, but there's a reason for it. Keep moving. I talked to a friend of mine about it. It's like, what's the worst can happen? We were, I think, pretty deep in with funding from some folks. We're like, hey, you know, North Face was our title sponsor. We had to ask, what if this can't happen? Can we push it to another year? And uh, so we were having those conversations. At this point, we're like meeting on Zoom weekly and we're talking and having all this time together, which I think actually was really good for the team, you know, sort of in retrospect, it's like all these roadblocks that we were able to overcome before we even like got some boots on the ground really was a lot of team building and just real life grit getting through it. And we just kept having these conversations about, well, there there's things in your control and there's things out of your control and we'll just deal with things as they come up. Let's just the gl- keep global pandemic is definitely on the uh, out of your control sort of <laughs> you're like, oh, man, we trained, we prepped, we're ready. And then the entire world shut down. You're like, huh, that's, that's, that's a tough one to work around. That's the thing is it's like as far as like taking obligation on yourself when people give you support, it's like, well, you know let's let's support each other and and do what we can but like the support doesn't come with like you know a a magic like make the world start again button or anything so so we'll just work with it and see where it goes 
the pandemic unfolded. Then the vaccine came, and with it, the prospect of international travel sat on the horizon. In March of 2021, the Nepali government announced that it would reopen the mountain. Eddie, like, did it feel stressful or was there pressure? I didn't really feel that much pressure other than the pressure to make it happen. I mean, I told you a story where like, feels like I'm sure what's going to happen. And then I joined the first meeting and they're like, well, we have no money in the bank. How are we going to make this thing happen? And, and, you know, so once we started going down that road and I committed to it, it's like I wanted this to happen. And I felt like there was a little bit of pressure, especially when random people kind of let it slip that this trip was happening. And then we made an announcement and we, I think at the time we made the announcement, we only had like $25,000 and the trip cost way more than that. Um, so I kind of felt like pressure that when people started hearing about this and wanted to see this happen, that we could like actually fundraise the money to make it happen. Because honestly, once we got to the mountain and I think how skilled everyone was in the team, it was more about just like finishing the goal because I feel like we prepared well and we were ready to do it. The team had to turn to the community. So in August of 2021, they launched a GoFundMe. They'd eventually meet their goal of $180,000. Still, a lot was in flux. A lot was up in the air. When the expedition finally turned the page from planning and theoretical and, you know, aspirational to, like, actually being on the ground doing the thing, how'd that feel for you to finally be in the Himalaya and, like, start the process? It was amazing. So I think when you're doing the planning and the aspirational part, it just it feels like work sometimes. And it's like, even though it's with a great team and a bunch of great people, it's like all the little fits and starts sort of feel like work. And once you put your boots on the ground and are in it, it's the momentum supernatural. And especially with, with a team like this, where it's like, we'd already had all this great time to form and it's a bunch of great human beings and really competent and skilled and good at solving problems and good at being and good at supporting each other that like, you know, it's like, okay, cool. We're rolling. We're here. And it just got super fun. So, so Adina though, had you ever been to the Himalaya or had you, uh, you know, had you wanted to climb Everest before? Like had it been on your radar? So one of my full circle moments with this whole trip is that I had been to the Himalaya as a child. So when I was um, six years old, my dad was working in India. um, And one of his friends had organized an Everspace camp trek. And since our family was already pretty close in the neighborhood, we were lucky enough to be able to go like that's probably not something we would have been able to do if we'd been in the States as usual. And my parents being the outdoorsy parents that they are, we're like, all right, we got like a six and an eight-year-old and a a buddy just invited us to go to Everspace Camp. Let's do it as a family trip. And so... um, Can you remember that? I'd been back to India, but I hadn't been back to Nepal until, until we went for the expedition. And it was amazing to me how like viscerally familiar the smell of a yak dung fire was and Hmm. i mean i do have some specific memories from being six and seven years old just because some we'd like picked up some stomach bug in um in Kathmandu, and i was i was in pretty rough shape most of the time and then um (laughs) 
and then had trouble with the altitude. And so from Gorakshat, my dad and I went back down to Lobuche. And then while we were hanging out there waiting for the rest of our crew to catch up, like I just started playing with the local kids. And so like my my most vivid memories of that are actually like me and this other kid like playing in the mud together. We were like building little dams to like direct the meltwater and stuff and and you know, kid stuff. <laughs> so that's that's the most specific memory I have, I guess. Yeah, that's, that is that is full circle. I'm like, wow, you were there as a kid. Did you have a reaction like the first time you saw Everest in person, like as, as you made the trek towards base camp? Well, it's interesting. We went on two trips last year. We went and worked at the climbing school in the winter and it was really cool. And it was cool to like spend a lot of time with the Sherpa people that Phil had already known and they met us at the airport and it just, it was like these huge mountain ranges. There was, wasn't very many people around and there was this huge, you were seeing all these huge ice flows all around. And I was like, man, this actually like gets me excited about like ice climbing and doing this type of stuff. But kind of when we came back for the Everest season, it was kind of a different story in a way. Like it was really crowded. There were so many people on vacation to just hike to one of the villages or hike to Everest base camp. And like, it definitely had a much different, it's kind of like Yosemite Valley in the summer where it's just like people all over the place. You know, as we flew into the Kumbu Valley and we started hiking up and trekking up and seeing all these other groups. That part was a little a little overwhelming and just a lot less peaceful than what we had in the winter when absolutely no one was here. The team made the trek to base camp. The crew developed strong bonds with the Sherpa team, who would climb alongside them and document the journey. It also became clear to Phil that there was a lot going on and that leadership might require something beyond leading a summit push. So I made the decision. I- all along, I was I was planning to climb. I was planning to be on the summit team, but it became clear, like during the expedition, just with logistics and having been there before with the plus ones that were hiking in us with the large team that we hiked, which was took some managing as well. We had folks coming into both camp. We met people all along. Like, wow, is the full circle Everest team? Oh man, I've been following you guys like throughout from Kathmandu to you know. I mean, we went to the U.S. Embassy. We had a press day there. We met with the Nepali Youth Council in Kathmandu. Had a day with them there. So honestly, for me, it was it it was exhausting, and I was still working. By the time we got to base camp, I realized that with logistics, plus ones, and other things that were happening, my best role for this expedition was to not climb and to focus on everything else. To take all so, as much as I could off of the other climbers. So that gave us the biggest chance for success in that sense. So I decided not to climb, which was hard, but I still went to, let's see, how many times did I go to Pumori Camp 1? Probably three or four, maybe four times. But every time a team went on a rotation, they went through the icefall, I got up, I went to Crampon Point, I came back to camp. Uh, yeah. Hmm. So I, I I did a fair amount of moving around in the icefall and and. Uh, Yes, you did a ton of uh, a ton of trekking, but with with no in- intention of like yeah, exactly. summiting the mountain. Most everyone remembers things going about as smoothly as could be expected. The team went through the process of acclimatizing, slowly making their way up and down the mountain until their bodies were ready to make the final push into the fabled death zone. An Everest summit window is ridiculously tight, with only a few good days really opening up during the month of May. May twelfth would be their day. 
yeah, so summit day was was kind of interesting. So we got to camp four pretty early in the day, and our head Sherpa Panuru came. Um, we all chatted, and we had a plan where half our team would leave for the summit at eight p.m. The other half of the team would leave at nine p.m. But it's really weird when you get to camp four. Even if your phone's in airplane mode or your watch or whatever, it all changes to Chinese time. So the times got all out of whack. And so I woke up at like eight o'clock, all ready to go because I was going on the nine o'clock train, and everyone was gone. You know, I didn't sleep well.、Um, I had moved myself from my personal tent into the comms tent, and, and I slept with the radio, and I and, and I was afraid to just fall asleep because I didn't want to sleep through the radio call. I didn't know if, what what would happen. When our, our head Sherpa, who was staying down there, came up to me and was like, "Hey, look, there's all these people up on the mountain. You got to get ready." And I kind of was like, "What? Like, I, you know, we're on oxygen at the time. It's just, you know, everything's a little bit harder up there." And I just really wasn't ready to go yet. But literally, the whole team was gone. Most people from Camp Four were gone, and it was the first good summit day of the year. It does make that day a little bit more crowded. But I just kind of got ready, got my snacks. I don't even remember what I had anymore. Got my like one liter of water, and then just started trudging up, and it really wasn't that big of a problem because I kind of got to the front of the queue within the first like hour and a half of leaving the tent, and basically, besides Manoa, who was on our team, who left the two hours early, didn't see anyone else the entire time. And it was like, gosh, it was it was not even two o'clock in the morning because like we knew the team was leaving at at eight o'clock. Like yeah, yeah. Eight o'clock at night for a sunrise summit, and it was like not even two in the a.m. We're like, and the, and you could hear the radio call coming, <laughs> and we we're just like, "Yep, that's Manoa on top. He's gonna he's gonna be back down at camp four like before breakfast." <laughs> we got to the front of the queue right before the balcony. Switched out my oxygen tank. I was climbing with a Sherpa Pasong. Yeah, we didn't see anyone until we saw Manoa at the Hillary step and him in. The Sherpa he went up with were coming down, and they were just psyched, and I was psyched. And my I wasn't wearing glasses because it was the middle of the night, so like his Sherpa walks up to me and just like rubs these frozen icicles off my eyes, which really hurt. Which that's like the one thing I remember. And then I got up to the summit. Pasong was like, "Hey, if we can get back off the south summit, and hopefully down the ridge before the queue catches up, we're gonna have the best day ever." And so we just hustled down and didn't use any of our extra oxygen tanks or switch out or anything, and went all the way back down to camp four, and then back down to camp two. So it was really cool. When when folks were on their summit rotation and we were listening to the radios back at base camp and getting updates, like that's that's one moment where I can think of where it was like there was something like really specific that was like, oh, this is exciting, but also an emotional roller coaster because you know people are still up in the death zone and until we know that everyone's. Back, it's high anxiety. But then hearing like people successfully getting to the summit was really cool. My job at that point was to relay messages to、uh, significant others. So Manoa, when he when I knew that he had summited and came down, then I called and I texted his wife. And then when Eddie summited came down, then I woke up and I texted his wife and I just kept relaying those messages and so on. How how fun was that to be the the bearer of good、oh, news, you know, to be、oh, texting everybody.、Awesome. <laughs> like, oh yeah, it was so good. Yeah, it was so fun to just be like positive every single time. Yeah. All in all, Manoa, Eddie, Rosemary, KG, Dom, Evan, and Thomas made it to the summit.
We'll be back with more after the break. So when you guys finally, when the whole team reunited in camp, how, how did you guys celebrate? Big dance party. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah. There was a, there was a private Sherpa party that most people didn't know about. That was pretty good. Yeah. You said a, a private what party? Sherpa party. All the Sherpas got together in their tent. Mm. And um, and I, I know I have some videos and some photos around, but they were drinking uh, kukri rum. They were just happy. But, and I think it was, it wasn't like, woohoo, kind of, they were definitely celebrating, but I think it was like, everybody was down, you know, and they sat and they drank beer and rum. And then we had the dance party in the night Yeah, <laughs> later on that evening. And so, yeah, I mean, how, so how did it feel? I mean, you're like, oh, after years of planning and years of uncertainty, the whole trip actually came together like it happened. I mean, after freaking six, seven weeks on the mountain, were you just like, you know, is everybody just relieved to be done and able to go home? Or, you know, you know like talk about the talk about the satisfaction and seeing through such a long, long process. Well, I mean, for me, it was it was definitely very satisfying, right? Um, that everybody was down. We had been successful, but not just again the summit. It was the it was really looking at the whole process of three years of planning with a year of you know a pandemic year in there, and then not kind of letting it go a little bit, but picking it back up again and kind of staying just holding fast and staying the course with that. And then the people. It was the connections of all the people who had given $5 even on GoFundMe, the kids who had, you know, grown pictures and sent them to us. And we had them in our, you know, in our kitchen tent. It was all of those things to me wound up in that we're successful and everybody's going home. It was sweet. So the, the stated goal for Full Circle Everest was to inspire the next generation of outdoor enthusiasts, educators, leaders, and mountaineers of color to continue chasing their personal summits. A year later, do you feel like that's worked? And certainly in the aftermath of, of the climb, did you guys feel like that that, that that happened? I mean, in that sense, it's still happening. We're, especially with the role that I was playing in the expedition, it's like, it's like almost we get back and now we're sharing and we're storytelling and, you know, we're, we're doing all these other things towards that initial goal. And so in a way, sort of, we're, still in the expedition we're in a different phase of it of seeing that through and that's been awesome like we're doing it right now we're talking with you but <laughs> you know we've been we've been going around um doing doing tv stuff doing events it's been really cool just meeting with all kinds of people and and especially when we get chances to sit down and have a longer conversation like you know things about being a person of color in the out of doors and experiencing things different ways. Like there, there's just like a lot of really nuanced feelings about it. And our team comes from a really diverse background as far as how we got to the out of doors and what our personal stories are. So being able to go to festivals and meetings and, and like town holly feeling events and sharing that and talking with folks has been a really really cool part of the whole um trip the team won the award the climb of the year award for the aac and that was really cool to see that that many people thought like a not cutting edge climb was really important to them to vote for it so i thought that was awesome 
But I think it's going to take a little bit longer to see like a trickle down effect. And I don't think it's just like our expedition. That's the one that's going to make the difference. Like I think our expedition was just a piece of many other things. I know like North Face is doing their uh, Minty program. Scarpa was doing a program like that. There's all sorts of other other organizations out there trying to get people outside. And I think it's a combination of those pieces that is going to start making a difference in hitting our goal. And I think that like, I mean, this is just one thing where you see, you just see climbing at like a very high stage in terms of a general public perception, right? Everest isn't like the hardest single climb, but it's also something that everyone knows about. Like, I think it's going to take a few more years to see if, you know, you start looking in the demographics when you're hiking a 14 er looks a little bit different, or it's at least in line with the demographics of Colorado or the demographics when you're in the climbing gym in line with the places that the gyms are. I think that's going to take a few years for that to, to really know if we're successful or not. I think like one thing that was really important with our trip and like, I always just like to highlight is our Sherpa team. And like, yeah, we keep saying it was the first all black expedition, but we had Sherpas on our team. We also had this guy, Amrit, who was a Nep- Nepali. He's actually in charge of the Kumbu climbing school. And that was his first summit of Everest. And he was like on our team, you know, he was one of the team members. I think we, we all view those, the Sherpas as team members. And I think that's one thing that gets lost a lot when people talk about Everest and then like climbers and rock climbers talk about Everest and the Sherpas maybe in a negative light. It's just like, you know, we we viewed them as team members. And actually one of our head Sherpa, Panuru, I knew before the expedition because he works at Sherpa House in Golden, Colorado, like 30 minutes from my house in the off season because he can make more money washing dishes in Golden, Colorado than he can living in Nepal other than those couple weeks of Everest. So like one of our big things I think in the trip was to really support those people and treat them as team members and, you know, try to try to help the people who live there as much as possible. Yes. Summoning was, was a big goal. Yes. We needed, we wanted people to summit the connection between communities and exposing people to the Sherpa community and making that connection so that we have more people in the black community around the world that can actually talk about the Sherpa culture and the experience of Everest from experience, not just from what they read in a magazine or see on television. And then you put Summit on top of that and the expedition itself, that was all icing on the cake. So to me, we hit all of those goals. And that to me is what spells success. It wasn't just the the, the Summit itself, yeah. I, from from your perspective, what special power does Everest hold over sort of the the broader public, our collective imaginations? Why does it still matter so much, not just to you, but to to everyone? It's the top of the world. It's a point that everyone can kind of think about, but people can't. Most people can't touch it. Everest is an icon, and I think I said this going into it. It's like you know. An example, we have all been on other 6,000-meter peaks. Denali, Aconcagua, Kilimanjaro is not 6,000 meters, but, you know, we've been climbing. Nobody pays attention to that stuff. Expedition Denali is the closest one, you know, that our society kind of knows about. But you throw Everest in there, everybody's paying attention to it. And then you add social media to that, everybody's paying attention to it. That's what Everest is. It's always been a dream of certain people. Now everybody can see that dream and they're like, oh, 
And then you throw the 11 black people going to climb Mount Everest. And like Alex mentioned before, if people can't see this, they've never seen that before. That made it even harder for us, actually, because it was 11 black people going to climb Everest, which black people don't do. They don't climb. They don't ski. They don't do this outdoor stuff coming out of a pandemic. Our society was paying attention to that. But the biggest reason, I think, because, again, it's Everest is an icon. But you take that icon and then you add a whole globe of people who are going through a life-changing experience. They're paying attention to it. And that's just what it was to me. It, that really got not only our society, but, again, I look way past it. I'm always looking globally. And it's like it got people from all over the globe to pay attention to something that was for everybody. It's like positive. Someone asked me this question yes a couple of days ago. It was like, was there any kind of negative things? Oh, yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot of negative comments via social media and so on about why or, you know, reverse racism, all these different things. I never paid any attention to it. But for the most part, people were looking for something coming out of this life-changing experience that was positive. And Everest just happened to be that iconic catch. If you, if that had been Denali, nobody would pay attention to it because it had been done. You know, it was done. Not many people paid attention to that. It was K2, maybe something, but it was Everest. In the past, history of black and brown people have not been told. It's kind of been hidden in there. Some I mean, I can take you to my bookshelf right here and give you four or five books that are, you know, on, on the Black West or Black First, which are people who, or Black people who have done things as the first Black person to do it or the first person to do it in general. But those stories have, for the most part, always been hidden from our society. We don't learn it in school. You know, they're not in the forefront. And so we kind of came around in a time where social media doesn't allow that to happen anymore right it's like it's in perpetuity you go to the internet and get full circle expedition you see a team of you know black people in sherpas climbing mount everest like that doesn't go away a lot of these other things we have to dig for it right and then when we dig for it people ask well, why does it even matter why should we teach that in school why should we teach that in general right People have not been paying attention to Everest from the black and brown community, not like they do now. And so right now in the outdoor industry, what you're having is people saying, hey, I want to know about those folks, including folks like yourself, because they're interesting. And that's what brings so much richness to this community that, for the most part, has been very homogenous. Thanks, Phil, Adina, and Eddie for sharing your story and perspective with us. Look for a feature-length film about their ascent later this year. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by Marco Seiler-Gonzalez and me, Fitzcahal. Evan Phillips mixed and mastered and provided additional editing. Music today by Joya, Faring, Cloud Cord, and Brendan O'Connell. Tracks are courtesy of Track Club or the artists themselves. Our producer is Lauren Delaney-Miller. Our executive producers are Ben Endy and Jonathan Redzik for RxR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape and Beer. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in the fall with a whole new season of Climbing Gold.